Stephen, praise team. I want to take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to look at a remarkable woman and an available man uh, tonight, two prominent people. Um, chapter 5 is a song that was written by Deborah and uh, sung as a duet by uh, Deborah and Barak. And so I want us to uh, look at these two incredible people at a time when Israel needed remarkable leadership. Years ago, I remember uh, Warren Wiersbe telling the story of uh, a uh, lady who walked up to the pastor. The pastor had announced that he was uh, leaving and, and uh, taking another assignment, and she walked up to him, and she was upset. And she said, oh, pastor, I just, I can't believe you're leaving. I can't believe you're going to leave us. What in the world are we going to do? And the pastor said, don't worry, dear, you'll get a better pastor. She said, yeah, that's what the last one told us. <laughs> you know, you just kind of hope when you look around America that we might get better leadership. When you look around our region, our community, even within our churches, that there might be better leadership. Uh, when you walk the streets of Washington, D.C., you just wonder, Lord, is there anybody? And there are, but they're outnumbered. And there, there was a day when giants walked in this land, when men of honor and integrity. And today we're seeing a leadership vacuum in a number of areas, dozens of generals retiring and resigning from our military with decade upon decade of experience because they do not believe that the military is listened to. It's been happening in waves over the last few years. It's a dangerous country that has leadership that is not prepared for a crisis. It puts us in a dangerous situation. Uh, I do not worship America, but I do want it to be a strong nation because it is still financially the greatest missions sending nation in the world. More people come out of America to go to missions than any other country in the world. And, and for us to maintain that, we have to have a strong nation with strong churches, with strong values and strong core beliefs. Harry Truman said, leadership is the ability to get men to do what they don't want to do and to like it. The historian Tonby said that uh, the rise and fall of societies has a one-to-one -one correlation with the quality of its leadership. I I'm reading a book on the presidents right now, and uh, one of them, uh, the, the, it, this book kind of has when they served, who they were married to, what their party, who they ran against, who their vice president was, kind of some quirky facts about them and some historical things about them. And one of our early presidents said, the greatest day of my life was when I got out of this office. Uh, you can look at anybody that served as president and know that it takes a toll on them. The pressures are enormous. That's why I believe we're to pray for those in authority. It doesn't mean we have to always agree with those in authority, but we are to pray for those in authority. Ron Dunn taught me something. He said, Michael, read your Bible 
read the history of revival, read the history of civilizations and cultures. Everything drifts left. You have to make a concerted effort to keep things on the road. He said societies, churches, cultures, morals, values, and governments all tend to drift left. They get more liberal, they get more immoral, they get more ungodly, they, they lose their values, they lose their stamina, they lose their fortitude, they lose their power, they lose their might. They all drift left. And when you look at it, really that is the truth of the history of the world. And, and so sometimes you have to have somebody who just seems out there just to try to get people's attention to how far they've slipped from going down the road and, and how much they are really in a ditch. And God had to raise up judges at this time in the life of Israel. He had to raise up men and women. Uh, there's a desperate situation that's mentioned. I want you to underline some phrases in, in chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, and, and I'll tell you what to underline because there's uh, four verses we're going to look at. Verse 1, then the sons of Israel, underline it, again did evil. Wasn't the first time they'd done evil. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They'd learned nothing from their past experiences. They'd learned nothing from their past captivities. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them. Notice that God sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera. The Lord sold them. And verse 3, and the sons of Israel, here it is, cried to the Lord. For he had 900 chariots, iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at the time. In verse 6, now she sent, and here it is, and summoned Barak. Something old, something new. They again did evil, and there's a new oppressor and a new judge. And the Lord raised them both up. Now, Deborah is judging in the hill country of Ephraim. This is where Ehud had blown the trumpet to rally Israel against the Moabites. And she's judging in the area around the Tabor, Mount Tabor and the Kishon River. Now, again, you would think that... <laughs> after their past and after uh, the three previous judges and all that has happened, that they would have learned something by now, but they've learned nothing. They, they're not paying attention. They're not looking at how did we get in the mess that we're in? You know, people say, I don't know how I got in this shape. Well, just look at the decisions you made. How, how did you get in that shape? You got it by the decisions you made, by the choices you made, by the people you spent time with and the people that spoke into your life. And so they come to this point and they cave in. And I want you to mark down by Judges chapter 4, John 8, 34. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, we're either going to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ or we're going to be enslaved to sin because something is going to master us and rule over us. And Satan has the incredible ability to convince every generation that sin is liberating. No matter what the consequences, no matter what the price, no matter what we see or what we hear, we're, we're told a lie by our enemy that sin is liberating and there are no consequences. 
Now, this happened, remember that uh, Jabin is the king of Canaan and he's reigning in Hazor. Now, now this is Hazor, okay? These are the ruins that's been excavated in Hazor. It's up in the northern part of the land. And and Hazor was a city with plains and and hills. And and this is where uh, Joshua had burned it. Now, just go to the next one, Dan. You see the black along there? For those people who say the Bible is just a fairy tale and it's been made up, that black line is the burn line from when Joshua burned Hazor 150 years before Judges chapter 4. And in Israel, they don't just clear the land, they just level it out and build on top of it. That's why there are 25 or 26 times Jerusalem has been torn down and rebuilt, and they just keep building on top. So when you dig down, every time you're digging down, you're going back a century or two centuries. And so here's a burn line in Hazor, but it's been burned, it's been destroyed. You find that in the book of Joshua. Now we come to the book of Judges, and Hazor has been rebuilt. Everybody knew Hazor had been burned. There's no question about that. Nobody's ever said Hazor wasn't burned because archaeologists have an amazing way of proving that the Bible is true. And now this king, 150 years later, has come. Now, Joshua burned it and dealt with a king called Jabin. Guess what? Here's another king by the same name. And, and, and he has a battle plan. We're going to go to a map. He's up in the north, and this is Deborah's victory over the Canaanites, and and he has a battle plan. He's going to push down from Hazor, is way up at the top. He's going to push down from Hazor. He's going to go north of of the Sea of Galilee, down through the central plains, and guess where he's going to end up? In the Valley of Megiddo, which we know as the Valley of Armageddon. Interesting how God keeps taking history lessons in the Valley of Armageddon. The absolute Napoleon said it's the most perfect battlefield that's ever been found on the face of the earth. All tribes and nations would have to go through that valley to get from one place to the other in crossing that narrow strip of land called Israel. And it's, he's controlled the land all the way to Ephraim. He's got 900 chariots. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 8. I mean, he is going to roll over Israel like a tank. He's got 900 chariots, chapter 5 and verse 8. Then war was in the gates, not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. I mean, you know, he's got chariots. They don't even have a shield or a spear. They're, They're outnumbered, they're outmanned, they're outgunned. And here's this king who is coming down on them that's oppressed them and severely oppressed them for 20 years. Now, let's look at a dedicated servant. God raises up Deborah, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and chapter 5, verse 7. Look at verse 6. And she summoned Barak and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor. And take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Now, hold your place, turn a page to Judges 5 and verse 7. 
The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. Now, Deborah's name is interesting. It means the bee, like B-E-E, buzz, honey, the bee. What's interesting about her name is with the Egyptians, a bee was a symbol of power. And in fact, in every Pharaoh's insignia in Egypt at the height of her power, the bee was on the insignia of, of Egypt because they considered it a symbol of regal power. Now, here's a woman that God has raised up. People say that God doesn't care about women and God demeans women and God puts women in secondary. By the way, Jesus Christ liberated women before the feminists even knew what that meant. I mean, Jesus Christ came and set women free. He talked to women when other people wouldn't talk to women. He, he corresponded, dealt with, loved on, ministered to, forgave women when other people treated them like dogs. You know, the greatest liberator of women is Jesus Christ. The greatest dictator and pushing down of women in the world is the Muslim faith. It humiliates women. It demeans women. My question, which nobody can answer, is why in the name of everything smart don't the feminists stand up and say, we can't let those people run this world? Because I want to tell you, when they get in charge, they're going to kill all the feminists. Christians will set them free. Just kind of interesting. You just got to kind of read your politics through the grid of Christian worldview It'll change it a little bit. By the way, God raised up another woman. You remember Golda Meir? Frumpy, wrinkled lady, chain smoker. I mean, she bossed generals around. She went into Israel in the 40s, and she was the prime minister. I mean to tell you, that woman had a mind as sharp as a tack, and she bossed men around and generals around, and she forced her will on the generals of that day. She demanded that they fight to the death for the freedom of Israel. Well, that's Deborah. I don't know if she was a chain smoker, but uh, <laughs> I'm assuming she wasn't. Let me give you five facts about Deborah. First of all, she was a prophetess. She's called a prophetess. Now, a prophetess in the scripture is one who the Lord has declared the spirit is resting on them. There are six in the scriptures, four in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament. There are only six in all of scripture that, that God gave that name, a prophetess, and she's a prophetess. Secondly, she was a judge. By the way, she's the only judge that was also a prophet. She's the only one that has that distinction so here is a woman among women. I mean, she is a leader. Thirdly, she was God's spokesperson, chapter 4 and verse 6, and chapter 4 and verse 14. Uh, she, she didn't seek political counsel. She didn't call a cabinet meeting. She didn't uh, get her posters to go out and interview 200 people and say, that's what the nation feels. She got God's word. 
and she made a decision on the basis of it. She was God's spokesperson. She didn't try to steal credit or glory. If you read Judges 5, she always gave the praise to God and to others. Now, it's kind of interesting to me in light of of Deborah being this kind of woman that, that Sarah and Rahab are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and Barak is mentioned in Hebrews 11, but Deborah's not. It may have been because Deborah never tried to say anything about herself and God said, I'm going to let her story speak for itself. I don't know. Number four, she was a military commander. I mean, she has a strategy for how that she's going to bring Sisera out into the open. Chapter 4 and verse 9 and verses 10 and 14, she calls for the attack and she gives orders to Barak. She was a worship leader, Judges 5. Uh, Judges 5 is a poetic song of victory. It's a duet with Barak. I've never heard a general sing, but I'm assuming he had a good voice because she wrote it. And uh, this was a song that they would sing that's been given to us in Scripture. Uh, Judges 5, 6, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. I mean, they were in bondage. People wouldn't travel the roads. I mean, there are places in this world you better not be on the road at night. This was a place where you better not be on the road, period. It was dangerous. There were hoodlums, there were oppressors, there were rapists, and there were people who would manipulate them and destroy them, kill them. Now, there are four reasons why she was a great leader. First of all, she acted to resolve the problem. She acted to resolve the problem. She didn't sit around and say, you know, somebody ought to do something about this. She was already judging in Israel and Ephraim, but she, she acted to resolve the problem. She came up with a plan. Secondly, she didn't act alone. She enlisted Barak, who was a military man and apparently a soldier's soldier. And, and so she didn't just say, hey, you know, I'm just going to go out here and do my own thing. She got wisdom from a military man, and she gave him orders. I love what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, Deborah without Barak would have kindled enthusiasm, but would have accomplished nothing. God put the two of them together at this point in the life of Israel to make a difference. Thirdly, she acted decisively. She acted decisively, chapter 4 and verse 8. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, the thing you need to know about what Barak is, he's not asking for her blessing, he's asking for her presence. This is a man that understands that God's hand is on this woman, that God has used her, he's given her wisdom and insight, that the Spirit of God is resting on her, and she has a plan to meet the enemy at the strongest point But the time of the year in which she meets him is the dry season. 
The river would have been mostly dried up. The rainy season in Israel is typically from about November until February, and that's when they get almost all of their rain. You hardly get any rain in Israel except in those few months. And then when the snow begins to melt off of Mount Tabor, it comes rushing down. You, you can go to a place like Caesarea Philippi, and, and there are trenches there, and there's a river there, and you can go by, and it won't be six inches deep. You just walk across it. You can, you can cross the Jordan River sometimes and you wouldn't even get your ankles wet because in just some places it's so dry because there's no rain. But when the, when the rains start and when the snow begins to melt on Mount Tabor, which is most of the water that comes into those rivers, when that begins to happen, those rivers can quickly have a flash flood and can begin to overflow their banks. And, and uh, I, I have been... Uh, down at Caesarea Philippi, you can go around the corner from there and walk about 150 yards just into the middle of where you think you're just going to get eaten by a lion. And, and you just walk around and you come up on a bridge that is still there from the first century, from the a Roman bridge that they built. And right after you go past that bridge, there is a river. I have been there when it's just been quiet and peaceful, like by a little stream. And I have been there when the water was rushing and white capping, and it was capping up at 20 feet, just pouring down into this narrow trench and going under this bridge and, and seeing the effects of it. This is why she orders this battle at this time, because God's about to do something. It's dry season. She can cross the river. Now, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Number four, she was a woman of faith. Chapter 4 and verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So here we have a decisive victory. Now remember, they have no, no shields, no spears, Barak's got 900 chariots, which means there are at least 900 to maybe 12 to 1,500 horses on those chariots. Just the sound and the sight of that with their helmets, with their shields, with their long spears that they could stick out ahead of those horses as they charged another army. Just the sight of that would be intimidating. By the way, just as a side note, in AD 67, when the Jews were rebelling against the Roman Empire, they followed this exact same battle plan of Deborah's. They looked in the Word, and they followed this battle plan, and they thought they could bring the Roman army down to this place, but God was not with them because God had said, I'm going to destroy this temple. I'm going to destroy this land because you've rejected my son, and they were slaughtered. That's not what happened here. Now, to get to where they're going to fight this battle takes about a week walking. It is over tough terrain, and it's about 90 miles for them to go from where she was to where they're going to fight the battle. And, and so Sisera's scouts can see them coming. They, they know what they're facing. They know that they can number. They can guess the number. They know that they don't have any shields or any spears because they've been in, uh, severely enslaved, and they've taken all that away from them. So they've just got to be laughing. I mean, they've just got to be mocking Israel. Uh, that, uh, how dare them come and fight us? But, but they marched in chapter 4 and verse 12. Then they took Sisera. 
They told Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him to the river Kishon. So here they come. Now, you got to get the picture. <laughs> These 10,000 Jewish warriors under the leadership of Deborah and Barak probably only have little short swords. You know, just you got to be in close contact to use these swords. They, they don't have any bows. They don't have any arrows, no spears, no shields. And they're staring at all of this, and it looks hopeless. They've got one advantage. They're on high ground. And if you got the high ground, you have some advantage because those horses and those chariots cannot get up the mountain easily. And so their position down at the bottom, Judges 5, verse 19, it's a good day for a miracle. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Cana at Tanak near the waters of Megiddo, and they took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, O oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Now, they're in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. You know, they didn't check the weather channel that day. There was no local on the eights warning flash flood advisories in your area. There was no siren to blow. God from heaven orchestrated a flood. Now you say, well, the flood would hurt Israel. No, it didn't. It bogged down 900 chariots and made them ineffective. And so when this storm comes and this water comes, the horses begin to panic, the floods begin to rise, the chariots are stuck, and Sisera's power becomes his problem. He can't fight on his terms. He's stuck. Not only can he not charge, he can't retreat. He's stuck in the mud. These iron chariots with iron wheels weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds, now totally ineffective. Can't make them work. It's not going to help in any way. And so they're hemmed in on one side by mountains and on the other side by a flooding river. Look at verse 14 in chapter 4. Deborah said to Barak, Arise. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. He couldn't get away in his chariot. He had to run. Verse 16, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. 
So here's God's army. They're not weighted down by all this. I mean, this is a lean, mean fighting machine. They're just men with short swords, and these guys have got these big shields and these big spears, and they're just running up and just going, they're just taking them out. They're stuck. They're not prepared for this battle. They've underestimated their opponent. By the way, every opponent of Israel has underestimated Israel. Everyone. Every war that has been fought, every battle that has been fought since 1948, the opponents of Israel underestimated them. There's a famous story of the tanks rolling down by the Sea of Galilee and nothing to stop them but a handful of tanks. And, and they're rolling down the road, Egyptian tanks. I think they were the Egyptian Jordanian. I think they were Jordanian. And they're rolling down the road, and there's nothing to stop them in going into Jerusalem and capturing the city. And they stopped. They just stopped. And they turned around. Now, this is on record. I mean, you can read this. This is on record. And they asked the tank commander, the road was open. There was nobody there to stop you. You had caught them by surprise. Why didn't you just go into Jerusalem? And he said, there was a cloud the size of a man's hand. And I feared that if we went forward, God would kill us. And they turned around. Not because the Israelis had a big army there. Because God had a cloud about the size of a man's hand and said, Hey, little boy, don't mess with me. Don't you mess with me. We're to pray for the peace of Israel, but God blesses those who bless Israel and bless Jerusalem. And I know that's not politically correct in these days. But if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down on the size of the people that God still has a covenant with, although they don't acknowledge him. And there still is a plan for them in the last days, in the end times, and at the coming of Christ. Read your Bible. Iran, you know, all Ahmadinejad has got to do is just read the Bible. Quit reading the Koran and read the Bible because there's going to be an Israel and there's going to be a Jewish people in that land. Guess what? He can't wipe them out. God could wipe him out. And God may get the help of an Israeli Air Force pilot to do it. But God can wipe him out. He can't wipe them out. He may think he can. But he's messing with the wrong people when he does that. By the way, and I think I've told you this before, but under the Valley of Armageddon, there is an Israeli Air Force base. And they open up the ground, and those jets hit ground level in flight. I mean, they come, they open it, and they're out. And you can't see it. I mean, you can stand right on top of Mount Carmel and look all day long. You cannot see where that base is. But I've been there when they have been doing some training with those fighters, and when they come screaming over those hills, and they're about mountaintop high, and you can see the face of the pilot as he's making that turn. The one thing you think is, I really don't want to mess with that guy today. He looks like he knows what he's doing. Because they're always prepared for battle. And they've always been outnumbered. So, 
Let's go to chapter 4 and verse 17. Now, don't forget, Deborah had said, Barak, you're not going to kill Sisera. I'm going to leave that to a woman. You know, a woman's work is never done, you know. Verse 17. Now, Sisera fled from away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her and to the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened up a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, and the three-word understatement, so he died. <laughs> That's kind of a conclusion you'd come to. She took a tent peg, probably about that big around, iron tent peg, and she slammed it through his temple, went through one side of his head, came out the other, and nailed him to the ground. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. Chapter 5 and verse 31, And the land rested forty years. Now this was one incredible woman because she risked her life to kill the king that was oppressing the people of God. But God had told Deborah, remember she's a prophetess and the spirit of God rested on her. God had told her that there would be a woman that was going to take care of the king and eliminate him as a problem for Israel. Twelve times in Judges 5, Deborah gives credit to the Lord. Deborah does not say, I'm the reason that SEAL Team 6 took out Osama bin Laden. She gives credit to the Lord. She never hesitated to give credit where credit was due. She praised Barak for his work. She praised this woman for what she did. She never failed to give credit where credit was due. So here's the key to victory. Number one, obedient surrender of self. Why did God use these people? Chapter 5 and verse 2, obedient surrender of self. They willingly offered themselves. Chapter 5 and verse 9, they offered themselves willingly. Obedient, willing surrender of self. Listen, when you're marching out, you don't know that a flood's coming. You just know God's told you he's going to give you victory. You don't know how God's going to do it. You know you're outmanned, outgunned. You don't have any chariots. You don't have any shields. You don't have any spears. But she yielded herself. She was willing to die. And then an attitude of faith, chapter 5 and verse 18. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even 
to death. Now, humanly speaking, we would say, well, the reason that they won is because of Deborah and Barak and this woman who killed Sisera. No, the reason that they won is because they didn't care if they died standing for what was right. John Hunter said, God is sovereign and his will must be done. He does not need super experts, just those who fit Deborah's description. He needs those who, are willingly, who will willingly offer themselves and those who are prepared, if necessary, to risk their lives. Those who have set no limits to the price they are prepared to pay in that same obedience to God. And so the question is, if we're going to have victory over an enemy when it seems like we're outnumbered and outgunned and it, we can never spend as much money as the world does to try to capture the minds and the hearts of our children and our young people. I mean, the world spent more on advertising today than churches can spend in 20 states in the next year on trying to reach a community. We, we can't outspend them. We can't out-politicize them. The moral majority didn't make America any better. It looked like it did, but really didn't. For a season, it looked okay, but wouldn't you admit that after 20 years of the moral majority, which finally shut down, that we're not in any better shape than we were? So we can't outspin them. We can't out-politicize them. What we can do is give ourselves willingly to God and say, God, however you can use me to restore your name, your word to this nation, then use me. I want to be used. I'm available to be used. I'm willing to be used with no, with no fear of death or consequences. And, and our fear is fear. We, we fear anybody saying or doing anything to us if we stand up and do what God has told us to do. We're on a path as a nation for bondage and to be severely oppressed. If you read the history of Germany, if you've read Andy Andrews' book on how to kill 11 million people, if you read the history of Germany, you know that we're on the same exact path. I mean, you could put the pages of American history and the pages of Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler on parallel paths and there wouldn't be one ounce of difference except we speak English on what's happening, to marginalize and to take the church inside. There are efforts that they don't mind the church meeting. They don't mind us meeting on Sunday night. Just keep it to yourself. Don't evangelize. Don't do missions. Just keep it to yourself. By the way, that's oppression. That's an oppression of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And we're already there as a nation. Uh, when churches are kicked out of buildings in New York and the mayor of New York City cares more about what size soft drink you drink than the moral fortitude of his city, we've got a weird nation. But there is good news. Uh, the new cardinal in San Francisco is one of the leaders of the uh, pro-marriage, right kind of pro-marriage, uh, stand. He's the new Cardinal of San Francisco. How do you think that makes San Francisco feel? 
<laughs> I mean, they just got the guy they hated the most, who's now the cardinal over San Francisco. God has his people. They may not all look like us. They may not all think like we do. But God has his people. But he's looking to raise an army of people who are willing to die and willing to give themselves for the gospel. That's what he's looking for. And that day may come in our lives. If not our lives, it may come in our children's lives. And we need to not be great superpower people we just need to be faithful people who do what God called us to do. And we need to pray for God to raise up leaders like Deborah and like Barak and like Gideon and others that we see in the book of Judges who can make a difference in our culture. Because if we don't, we're driving 100 miles an hour with no brakes heading off into the Grand Canyon. We're going to crash and burn. And the reason I'm taking the time to preach through the book of Judges is because in my view of the book of Judges, it parallels where we are as a nation right now. And we cannot be dull to that or insensitive to that. And it's not going to change by us watching the news and griping at the television. It's going to change by us praying and by us being available and willing to serve God in the hour in which he's raised us up. So let's pray together. In just a moment, we're going to sing the song victorious. But before we do, I just want to ask you to pray specifically about a couple of things. First of all, pray that God will raise up principled people. people that understand the value of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Pray that God will raise up men and women who are unafraid to stand for what is right. We need that in our community. We need that in our region, in our state, and in our nation. And then would you just draw that circle around yourself if you're willing to say this, Lord, I willingly offer myself to you for you to use me to make a difference in the world in which I live. I, I can't do anything about San Francisco. I can't do anything about Washington, D.C., I can't do anything about Birmingham or Atlanta, but I can't do something about Albany and Leesburg and Dawson, Sylvester. I can do something about that because this is where we live. And it needs to begin in us that God puts a burden on us that we do not want, nor do we want our children to live severely oppressed. We want them to enjoy the blessings and the freedom that we have enjoyed. And somewhere out there, maybe yet to be born, 
there's a Deborah, there's a Barak, there's a Gideon who can take the master's minority and change a nation. Christianity began with a handful. And within 70 years, it had touched the known world. It can happen again. The same Holy Spirit is within us. The same power is available to us. The same promises are given to us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We do not have a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. So we need to stand on what God has told us we are and what we are to do. And to boldly approach the throne of grace and ask God to raise up people who can turn us back around. And I'm not just talking about politics and I'm not just talking about the nation. I'm talking about churches. I'm talking about the 800 Southern Baptist churches that will close their doors this year because they've lost their vision. They've lost their passion. They're dying. There's nobody in them under 60 years of age because they've quit caring and they've just become self-absorbed. I'm talking about a me-centered, what's-in-it-for-me Christianity that's killing us. That thinks, what can I get instead of how can I serve and how can I love and how can I give? That'll put us in oppression if we don't have the right attitude about the things of God. And so, Lord, let it begin. Lord, we have no shields and no spears and no iron chariots. But we do have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we do have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we do have the shield of faith. We do have the shoes of the gospel and the helmet of salvation. We are equipped to be soldiers of the cross. Let us not be a wall at a time when you need your soldiers on the front lines. I pray, Father, we'll not grow weary in well-doing, that we'll not faint at a time when we need to stand strong. Lord, the forces are just tromping over this land. They're discouraging and dividing and weakening. But God, just like you told Elijah when he thought he was all by himself, I pray that you'd help us to see that we are not alone in this battle, that there are others across this land, pastors, people, that are praying and working and longing and talking and longing for, asking for a coming revival that could change the tide of this nation in a matter of months. Lord, Israel didn't deserve another chance, not as many chances as they squandered, but you did give them chances over and over because of your mercy.
Lord, I stand before you tonight and know that America doesn't deserve another chance. We have slandered your name. We have booed your name this week. We have grieved your heart by murdering 60 million babies and calling it choice. We have turned our heads on the weak and the needy and the lowly. Father, I ask you, give us another chance. Not because we deserve it, but because we desperately need to see you work one more time in this land so that millions might be swept into the kingdom so that the name of God Almighty would be exalted in this land so that we could not just sing but be victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.